Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Talking Football, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. My name is Nick Wiltagen, and as you will know, the international break is currently ongoing, so there's really no Bundesliga football to talk about. However, what we decided to do instead is to give you a little taste of what is going on on our Patreon channel at the moment. So, in the first part of the show, you'll be hearing my interview with Michael Wagg about his book about GDR football, titled uh, The Turning Season, DDR Oberliga Revisited. You'll be hearing that in part one. In part two, you'll be hearing my deep dive with Manuel Breuer about Borussia Mönchengladbach. So, without any further ado, let's dive straight into that interview with Michael Wack after the break. Let's open a tin of Spreewald Gurken and drink some Vita Cola because today we'll be talking about DDR Oberliga football. Joining me to do just that is writer and actor Michael Wack, who has recently seen his book, The Turning Season, DDR Oberliga Revisited, being published. Welcome to the show, Michael. Uh, hi, Nick. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. It's great to chat to you. And thanks for your, for your interest in the book as well. It's much appreciated. It was an absolutely terrific read and uh, can't wait to dive straight into it. So uh, for those of you who haven't read the book, uh, you are actually going on sort of an epic journey throughout East Germany to visit all teams that were featuring in the GDR Oberliga in the 89-90 season. What gave you that idea? Uh, well, in the first place, I guess, I, I, it's my first book, the first thing to say is... and, and uh, uh, also, I haven't written a huge amount before uh, about football. I write all sorts. Of, I write in all sorts of forms. I write a lot for theatre. I've written some poetry, some uh, short-form journalism. Um, but but I'm a huge reader of football literature and uh, of, of football literature that includes travel, that includes the journey, uh, whether you know, literally going to the match, I guess. So I, looking on the sports shelves. Uh, I felt like the, in English there, there, didn't, there didn't seem to be a book, uh, the, the sort of book that I, that I would like to have read about um, uh, the history of East German football. There is a brilliant book, I should say, um, by Alan McDougall in English called The People's Game, which is absolutely superb and uh, was invaluable to me in writing mine. Um, I couldn't have done it without it, but, the, but mine is a very different book. Alan McDougall's is, is, is academic. Uh, and very, very weighty in its learning its, uh, and its, its depth and breadth of understanding of German history. Um, so I've been no, no way competing with that. But, and as I say, it was invaluable. But I felt like perhaps a slightly more accessible uh, uh, look at it, uh, back at East German football, then there may be room for that. And I wanted to learn because I, when I started out, I knew very, very little about it. So uh, how I came to... Um, to focus or to, to make the the start of my exploration, I guess the 1989-90 season was was a that uh, it's 30 years ago. Um, I'm writing about something exactly 30 years ago as my starting point. Um, so there's something perhaps neat about that or useful to um, to keep uh, to keep a focus on. Um, but but also uh, that that I'm, I'm interested in, in in the broader history of of Germany and, and East Germany uh, and that particular season uh, 89-90 when, when the season started the Oberliga uh, in August of that year the, the Berlin Wall was standing um, firm as it had done for 28 years 
Uh, by the end of the season, in fact, soon into the season, uh, the malfall had happened uh, and the wall was down. So uh, in, the, in the way that that period of history is, is known in German as Divender, the, the turning and the turning point, that season felt very much like the turning point because um, everything changed after that. The following season did, did happen, uh, the 1990-91 season during the, the process of reunification and then at the scrap for, for Bundesliga places. Um, but it, that felt sort of pivotal uh, uh, and important to look back to, to that particular time. And, and I look back to that season and I sort of take it as a starting point to look back further into the history of the Oberliga and forward from that year, from that season um, up to date. So the 30 years, the 30 seasons that have happened since the Berlin Wall fell. Um, if that answers your question, the, the sort of more personal answer is I don't really know why um, <laughs> I was drawn to it. You know, you get you get uh, drawn to uh, the history of a particular country or region, uh, to, the, to to particular football clubs. Sometimes something uh, to do with their names or their club colours or their crests or whatever can can draw you in. And, and I just got fascinated with a the history of East Germany, but but um, with the idea that I'd like to learn about East German football clubs. So I set off on the journey to visit them, to visit the 14. Hmm. Well, I mean, if we look back at the 80s in GDR football, as you note in your book, uh, Dinam Berlin, they were winning a series of championship year in and year out. Then the turning season arrived, uh, 89 and 90. Uh, at the start of the season, the wall stood. At the end of the season, the wall wasn't there anymore, as, as you mentioned. I mean, how did that massive historic event impact that season? Uh, in many ways, I'm sure. Um, and it's very, very hard for anyone like myself who, who, uh, who didn't grow up in the DDR to, um, to understand what life was like um, uh, living in that society. I guess the, uh, in football terms, one of the obvious things is that crowds were hugely down. Um, people had a lot of other things on their minds um, and crowds, I think, I, I, I could be wrong, but I roughly halved uh, in that season. The, the average crowd in the Oberliga was, I think, between nine and 12,000. Um, and the season before, it was probably an average of about 8,000. By that season, it was down to four, I think, on average. So, so crowds plummeted and, and you know, uh, there was, a, there was a lot more important things to, to think about. Then when the wall came down, of course, there was the option to travel and to do other things on a Saturday. Uh, and there was, an, I'm sure, an excitement about going over into the West and, and A, seeing Western teams um, that you might have followed as well. And many East German fans, I think, had two teams, one in the East and one in the West that they followed. So there was an opportunity to go, to go and see matches but, you know, um, people went shopping, I guess, as well. I mean, people are, uh, and, to, you know, um, to, to, to see family members. So there's, there's a lot of, of other, other of the stuff of life going on. Football, I guess, took a little backseat at that time. Um, and as you say, um, that in that season, Dynamo Dresden bounced back after quite a lot of domination by um, uh, Dynamo Berlin BFC. Mm, indeed. And uh, talking about going shopping, I remember a story uh, which is, uh, you know, I've told in pretty much every book about Werder Bremen, which is my favorite team. Um, they actually had, they actually uh, 
had a trip to BFC Dynamo back in the 80s, which where they lost uh, 3-0, I think. So they need a bit of a wonder at the Visa Stadion. So what um, manager Billy Lampke decided to do was that he actually gave the Dynamo players, uh, BFC Dynamo players, a healthy allowance and said, chaps, go chopping. <laughs> and, and his plan was that, you know, all the luxuries of the West would take their mind off the game. And if that actually was the decisive factor, I don't know. Um probably never going to find we're never going to find that out but in any case yeah. Verda won that game 5-0 um right. which is uh which is a great story from from Verda point of view um but as you mentioned so t- people went over to the west there was sort of this new excitement about um you know seeing new places uh, i just read in a book about union berlin that uh union president Dirk singler said that he had family in west berlin and they sent him packages uh over uh, you know over the, over the border and that everything from the west smelled so nice mm-hmm. but these days there's actually a word called nostalgie a german word which means nostalgia for the gdr if i would translate it somewhat loosely yeah. um in your book you tell the story of how all of those 14 teams uh that played in the oberliga during that turning season how they fared after die wende Given how most of these clubs are doing and what sort of circumstances the people who are living in those cities are living under, do you understand why a certain segment of the population in East Germany has sort of sort of nostalgic feelings about how things were back in the GDR? Yeah, of course I do. And I, um, and, and I, re- I respect that. Uh, and I also, uh, have, you know, uh, I'm not in, in any way trying to analyze um Condone or condemn the, the social and political systems uh, of the GDR. That I, I, I'm uh, I'm not the brain for that. I need a far bigger brain for that, and I don't I don't pretend to be to be trying to do that. Um, but I understand uh, some of those feelings, and and I guess the, uh, from from a personal point of view, I can understand it through age as well. I was 16 in 1989, and my, my football. Um, life, my life at the time was totally. Um, was I was obsessed with football. Every waking hour, I was playing football, following football. Um, that was my football um, apprenticeship, I guess, uh, in the 80s. So th- there's a romance. There's a romance that comes with, I guess, looking back to y- your football era, your own personal football era. Um, add on the the. the political context of that and it's hugely complicated I'm sure uh, but I can understand why you might um, have those feelings and and uh, the whole world uh, of the GDR has become it seems to it, it, you can find uh, as you travel around those cities now that there is a, a whole industry of, of nostalgia um, positively uh, as uh, uh, as well as perhaps in some places negatively in the sense of trying to um, decipher, trying to understand, trying not to forget, trying to make sense of, uh, of what happened at that time. Um, uh, the danger, I guess, is romanticizing it too much. Um, but also, football fans are pretty romantic, I would suggest. And, uh, also, and maybe lower league fans, and many of these clubs now are lower league clubs, there's a romance um, which I'm very attracted to. And I sort of make no apology for my own personal romantic view of some of that football. But it's the football that I'm talking about, not the nostalgia for 
a political system that existed um, up to that point, if that, that makes any sense. One of the most touching stories I read in your book was the one about Stahl Brandenburg, uh, which is now a seventh division team, sixth, sixth yeah, or seventh yeah, division seven. team. Now, that scoreboard of Stahl Brandenburg is actually on your uh, on the cover of your book. And there's a very special story behind that uh, scoreboard, which sort of, I, I don't know, I mean, it sort of encapsulates for me the spirit of East Germans, because... East Germans had oftentimes, during the times of communism, they had to do without something, so they had to come up with another solution, an ingenious solution. And that scoreboard is, it is sort of in that spirit, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's, it is. I, I would definitely describe it as ingenious. And the spirit there is a sort of uh, make, do and mend, you know, um, get on with it, because if we don't, then we die. You know, we, we have to make this work. Uh, it, and, it, and, it, and that chapter is the first um, chapter after the uh, introdu introduction stuff in the book. Um, and it's a good example of sort of what I was trying to do with, with the journey and with the book. In the, As I say, I, I wanted to go with a very open mind and an, an empty notebook and not decide what I was going to write about and, and have things um, uh, to, to discover things and little stories that said, you have to write about me. Um, and that in Brandenburg was was a, an example of that. I went there with a with a good friend of mine um, from Hamburg who, who helped me a great deal on the journey with translation and other things. Uh, and we, we arrived there, uh, a crowd, um, I don't know, probably 200 or so maximum. Uh, we were looking at this scoreboard because it looked, it, 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 in, in a retro sort of way, it looked pre pretty impressive. Um, it was worth, certainly worth taking a picture of it. So we were taking a picture of it. Um, and a guy, very friendly guy, came up and said, oh, you, you can get a bit closer. Um, so he opened the gate to let us go around the track and uh, get a bit closer to take a picture. And then an older um, man came along. Uh, they had a chat. We, he could see we were very interested in this scoreboard because, it, 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 to me, it looked beautiful in a very shabby, rusty, falling down sort of way. Uh, and then he, he said, come Follow me. So we, we went up the uh, the steps at the back of the scoreboard box, in a door through a door and into the box itself. Uh, and he showed us how this what was apparently a fully functioning electronic scoreboard, how it actually operated. I won't spoil it, but it, but he had a a magical ingenious um, fix for a very aging um, knackered electronic scoreboard. Um, And I, I describe him as a, ma a magician because I think he's uh, making magic there. So I've written the, the chapter is about um, Mr. Schmidt and, and, and his, his scoreboard. It was really one of the, the most touching things I read. I mean, it's, it's sort of um, not giving away the solution. It's, it sort of encapsulates that spirit of we want to keep going no matter what. And we need to be a club. We want to go forward as a club. Um, And, you know, this club's played in the Oberliga 30 years ago, and now they are in the sort of nether regions that, you know, most yeah. teams in West Germany who are in the seventh division have never seen anything like first division football. They have. Yeah. Well, Stahl Brandenburg uh, in the UEFA Cup as well. Mm, um, indeed. Played against Gothenburg in the, in the UEFA Cup, yeah. Mm. And I think drew with them in, in one leg, in the home leg, maybe. I think they, they got a draw. Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. Um, but um, <laughs> I would have to go look at my uh, my 
But that is quite astonishing to to think that um, the the, the then and now of that is um, quite stark. Mm. And talking about the then and now being quite stark, uh, let's talk about another story that you take up in your book. Um, uh, And that's the one about Jörg Stübner. Um, Most listeners probably don't know who he was, uh, never heard the name before. So tell us a little bit about about him who was he and how was he faring before Devender and how was he faring after the turning point well uh, Jörg Stübner was a Dynamo Dresden player um, and again it's an example I mean every chapter is an example of how I didn't know what uh, anything about the the city or the club when I arrived and hadn't chosen in advance what I was going to write about and the story of Jörg Stübner absolutely screamed out to me that I had to had to uh, learn more and and try and write something about him. Remarkable character. And, uh, I hadn't heard of him even having done. My journey consisted of three separate trips, and and this was the third um, of the trips. And even having done the first two, his name hadn't cropped up. I still hadn't heard of him. But as soon as I got to Dresden, his name kept cropping up, and I couldn't ignore it. And I'm so glad that I learned about him. One of the first things that I saw, basically what I did in each city, was wandered about looking for clues uh, uh, to uh, the history of the football club and what might be a story to tell. And I saw a, a little card in, in a, uh, probably in a pub doorway, advertising a, um, a book premiere uh, of a book um, by a journalist and historian called Uwe Carter, um, who was about to publish a book about Jörg Stübner. Um, and the English, the English, I've got a card on my above uh, my desk here. The English um, title is uh, Stubner, pop star against his will, and he was sort of considered the pop star of DDR football. He was extremely talented um, from a very young age, gifted, very good looking, uh, extremely popular, um, real, you know, real pop star looks. Uh, and uh, I guess in the end, a sort of stereotypical pop star lifestyle. He, he battled various um, addictions, uh, in, um, I believe, throughout his career and, and certainly in later life. And Uwe Carter um, uh, decided with him to, to write um, a book about his life. And Jörg was working um, with him on this book uh, and very sadly um, died last year just before the book came out uh, and, and that's uh, around that time I was in Dresden um, and, and learnt about this uh, and so I spent quite a bit of time with, with Uwe and he was very very generous with, with his time and very kind to me uh, and told me um, all about his relationship with Jürg in, in trying to write um, the book about his life and career uh, and the great sadness that he never saw it published um so the the chapter is about Jörg and, and he was a he started off as a striker he was uh, and then uh, Ulf Kirsten came in and sort of took the took the the uh, striker spot off him and, and he moved back to, to a midfield position it was a very by all accounts an extremely gifted uh, technical intelligent midfielder um but also uh, was often given the, the less creative role of um, stopping some of the great stars of the day play. So I, I write about um, a, a World Cup qualifying match for the, for the 1986 World Cup 
uh, DDR against France, and, and Jörg Stubner was given the job of stopping Platini, uh, and apparently did did this with absolute aplomb uh, and and brilliance, and played Platini off the park, which is no mean feat, considering he, obviously Platini was the European Football of the Year at the time, and France the European champions. Um, uh, so that. And, and everyone I spoke to, including Ulf Kirsten, said um, basically Stubes, uh, as they called him, Stubes was the talent. Never mind anything else. Uh, never mind anyone else. If you want, if you want to know who the best player was in our team at that time in the 80s, um, double double winning Dynamo Dresden. The the talent in the team was 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 Stubes, and everyone spoke of him with great fondness. Um, and of course, with with sadness, he was he, he died far too young, um, in his in his early fifties. So I, uh, the, the chapter is about um, uh, Uwe Carter's um, t- telling me the story of Jörg Stubner, and, I, and I'm so glad that I was able to um, spend that time with him. Mm, so what what happened to him after the vendor? I mean, obviously he was part of that Dynamo side, and and then it's sort of what happened then. Yeah, well he. Uh, many of them, uh, uh, Zama, Kirsten, obviously got big moves to the West. Uh, Jörg didn't. He, he stayed with, um, with Dynamo Dresden for two, two more seasons, I think, but, it, but didn't play many matches. I think he only played about five Bundesliga matches. He was, he was get, it appears to me that he was pretty much burnt out by then. Um, He wasn't old. Uh, he was still uh, in his prime age-wise, you would say. But uh, injuries and uh, um, drink, alcohol had taken its toll, uh, and uh, he didn't. For, for whatever for, that was, probably part of the reason he didn't get a move, or he didn't play more games in the Bundesliga for Dresden. But also, um, by all accounts, very shy. Uh, didn't really want to go and talk to clubs in the West. It, not that he needed to go to the West, not suggesting that was what he, he ought to have done, but um, uh, he didn't. And one of the reasons I, uh, was explained to me that he, he, he found it very difficult to go and talk to, to strangers, including potential new employers. You know. uh, so, he, um, so he slipped very quickly after those first two seasons down the leagues. Um, um, you know, Uh, lower and lower into um, uh, lower levels of football and retired soon after um, uh, and di- didn't, um, didn't he briefly got another job in football as a coach uh, uh, for kids um, but that was the end of his, his football career and, and it, 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 it you know I, I, I'm very happy to stand corrected because I, I'm in no way an expert on his life um, or the history of the club and um, uh, the moves of players from the east to the west but it appears like the story has some strong um, echo uh, of the, the turn for for many people so it's it's the antithesis of um, a beautiful merging of, of systems and people and a reunification And uh, you know, money uh, and opportunity—it's the sort of opposite of that. Um, it's a very sad story of not being able to cope with the new Germany. Yeah, uh, well, you know, when, when I was reading that chapter, I was actually thinking about another GDR footballer who gets a very, very brief mention, I think, in your book called Reinhard Lauk. 
who used to play for Union Berlin and then went to BFC Dynamo and uh, he hated that move. He didn't want to go there and he was he had sort of some some of the same character traits as well and he died too of you know drink and other addictions. Uh, very early death and he I think he died after the vendor as well but uh, he had retired many many years before before it happened he actually featured in that 74 World Cup game between the East and the West so uh, I think as you write it's sort of or as Uwe Carter says in one of his quotes it's sort of maybe a little bit too easy to to blame uh, the fact that things went downhill after the after the turning point on you know simply on the fact that Germany was reunited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, uh, yeah, personal everyone's story is different in that sense, isn't it? And 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 your your um, when football was over, it, it appeared there was nothing left for him. It, looking from the outside, it looks like he he couldn't find anything to replace the football. You saw the sort of paradox in there in that he. He didn't appear to enjoy the limelight, even though he was considered this sort of pop star character uh, figure uh, because he was so loved as a player. Um, but then when the limelight had gone, there was nothing left. Do, do you know what I mean? There's, um, and when the football had gone, uh, he, uh, he felt hurt, I think, and probably also hurt by um, uh, apparent lack of success compared to others, uh, whether that's his own reflection of that or... Uh, other people's reflection on him, you, you know, um, it's, it's, yeah, very sad. But uh, I'm, I'm glad to have read about him. Me too. I, I I personally had never heard about him before, Bob. Before I picked up your book. Um, moving on, as you note in your book, uh, there are many other great East German clubs that don't get a mention. Uh, I mean, at the start of the book, you mentioned Union doesn't get a mention because obviously they weren't playing, featuring in that season. Now they're in the Bundesliga. Um, could you tell tell our listeners about a few other places they should visit once that is possible again? Uh, if they should decide to go on a football weekend in East Germany that are also worth taking in besides those 14? Well, uh, well I would absolutely say go to these 14 uh, in the first place. And um, as listeners, I'm sure, know, there's so much, so much to be taken in in Berlin at, at all levels. Um, Berlin football weekends, are, I think, are becoming are getting better and better in terms of a trip from from elsewhere to there. Uh, uh, I would recommend uh, uh, Leipzig for the, those two teams, the two locomotives we just mentioned as well. Um, uh, just trying to think where else. I mean, some of these uh, Bischofsfeder is is a. I didn't. You know, it, it, I hadn't, have to be honest, I'd never even heard of the town, let alone been there before. Um, and it would be worth a look. Uh, I loved my time in Jena, um, and there's something about the name Carl Zeiss Jena and the, the, the European his, club football history that they have. Uh, the ground currently is brilliant, and I, I believe I'm right in saying it won't exist in that form for much longer. Um, there's plans to to make that a more generic-looking modern football stadium, um, but it's currently a beautiful ground with lots of features that uh, visiting fans from elsewhere would enjoy. I think I'd, I'd definitely recommend a trip to Jena. And I, I actually had been to Jena before many many years ago on tour, um, 
but too long ago to really remember and and uh i'd sorry, I'd forgotten about the place and it's a great city as well i really i'd recommend spending time in yana itself as well and equally effort um which i've been to a few times is the center of effort is is, is quite a stunning um, place to ever wander around. It's beautiful. Uh, so I'm going to be um, I'm going to be loyal to these fourteen and recommend you go with your book uh, to these fourteen. <laughs> well, that's, that's sound advice. Um, well, I know about a place that both me and you have visited that um, doesn't get a mention. Uh, oh well, it does get a mention at the start, but the, obviously the team isn't described in the book, uh, and that is Neustrelitz. Uh, now I went yeah. to the cup match against SC Freiburg back in 2013. Uh, had an absolutely lovely time. I, I love the fact that you know you had to the cab took us through a bit of a forest before we went to the stadium, and and the stadium was actually had a good vibe to it and it was sort of very small tiny friendly club um you actually could walk past the freiburg players as they got to the bus and uh you know the players went around the ground and shook hands uh well uh and you know greeted greeted some of their friends and families who were there at that cup game so it was a sort of a typical first round of the deep people call sort of atmosphere um yeah. But you notice beside the, the club there are actually some other reasons why you should fall in love with Australia's. Well, uh, I would love to see a match there. I haven't, I haven't been lucky enough to do that. But it, it was the, it was the sort of starting point of, of my interest in, uh, in the region in, in Eastern Germany and, and in the history of uh, the DDR and then later in the football clubs. Uh, I was on tour uh, as an actor, doing one-nighters in the, flying everywhere, you know, zooming everywhere in the back of a van and a different town every day, a different theatre every night. Um, uh, about 17, 18 years ago, and one of the, we spent quite, the, the company is based in Munich that I was working with, and a lot a lot of the tour was in uh, Germany, and quite a lot of it was in Eastern Germany, and I just fell for the region. Uh, I became very fascinated with it, and for, for, for no reason that I can pinpoint, somehow, Neustrelitz was the standout town for me. I just uh, was drawn to the place. Uh, and I, I suppose there's some sort of romantic notion that I'd found, uh, you know, I couldn't say why, but I found uh, a place that I would live in one day. Uh, and the, the theatre is very beautiful there. Uh, I remember the lake, uh, the big lake, uh, fairly close to the, the centre of the, the town centre. Um, and I, I just sort of, in, in, a, in, a, in an absurd sort of way, I just became a bit of obsessed with the place. And, and told everyone about it. Anyone who would listen, I told them, you must go to Australia. Uh, ten years or so later, I got more and more interested in lower league football, in non-league football in England. And, uh, and then more recently, I decided to merge the two and, sort of, and do the tour that I always wanted to do. Uh, but which didn't include having to do the, the theatre show every night because that just got in the way. Uh, I, want, I wanted plenty of time to, to focus on football. Uh, so that's, that's how this book came about, and Australia was somehow the start of it. But I couldn't go back there for this because they, they, they were far from a DDR Oberliga team in 89-90. In fact, I don't know whether they were, how far away they were. They, they may well have been second or third division, I don't know, but they weren't in the Oberliga. I think uh, the highest they've been in the German league system is in the Regionalliga, which is the fourth tier currently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I couldn't, so I couldn't add them to my list. They couldn't be counted on for this one. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to go back there. Um, and I'm sure it, uh, I've misremembered the place as the world's greatest place. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not. But uh, so I, I probably need to go back and prove that. But I would love to to, to see a match uh, now, knowing getting a feel for for football, particularly at regional league level, which is where I like it. I, there's something about that league, particularly obviously the Nord Ost uh, um, league of it, um, division of it, uh, feels like the, somehow the closest I can get to the DDR Oberliga. And many of the, the majority, not the majority, but the largest number of former DDR Oberliga teams are playing in that league than any other league. Um, that, that's, the, that's sort of where they're bunched up, about four or five of them. It feels like a, a natural level somehow. And, uh, that shouldn't be the case, and we, we discussed the, sort of the, the fact that those teams from that region are still catching up. But it sort of is the case, I think. But I don't bemoan. Uh, I, I rather celebrate um, football at that level if I can, you know, for the reasons we've talked about community and, and, and having a good time at the match. Michael, it's been an absolute blast having you on our show. It's uh, been delightful talking about GDR football because we don't get to do that this often obviously as we focus most of the time on, on Bundesliga and Bundesliga 2 football um, well I really appreciate it I really appreciate your, your interest and, and support of the book uh, very much so so thank you for having me on a pleasure um, please tell our listeners uh, where they can find you your work and where they can find you on Twitter and other social media if you if you are on Instagram and such and uh, maybe you could also tease another project that you've going on at the moment another book project yeah, uh, well, in terms of the book, the book is published by Pitch Publishing. Uh, so on Twitter, they're at Pitch Publishing. Um, on Twitter, I'm uh, at Michael Wag, all, all one word. Uh, that's probably the best place. And there you can find my blog site on there, which um, will take you to other stuff that I've written. Um, as I say, I write for theatre as well. Uh, and I've another book coming out, um, co-written, uh, it's coming out in January, which I should tell you about in terms of next project as well. It's uh, it's fiction. It's a novel that I've co-written uh, with a brilliant uh, writer for children and young adults called Phil Earl. We're old friends. We've known each other for a, a long time, and we decided to write a book together uh, for um, teenagers, but also older, uh, 11 plus, 11 to 111 year olds. Um, and it's it's a short-ish novel. Uh, called Edgar and Adolf, and it's about um, uh, a friendship between Edgar Cale and Adolf Jaeger. Edgar Cale was a, a hero uh, of Dulwich Hamlet in the 1920s and 30s, um, and Adolf Jaeger played for Altona 93 uh, around the same period, uh, and there's a great friendship between those two clubs, uh, one in London, one in Hamburg, um, and Phil and I have imagined... Um, and, and develop the friendship between uh, between the clubs and uh, particularly those two players uh, between the wars. So it's uh, it's, a, it's a novel for young people, um, also about German football. So um, there's a, there's there's certainly a theme developing, I would guess, in my in my writing that I didn't imagine would, um, but I'm very very happy that it is. Once again, thank you to Michael Wack for answering all our questions about his book. You can win a copy of his book if you sign on to our Patreon channel, patreon.com forward slash Talking Foosball. Just leave a comment in the post for the interview and uh, you'll be 
in with a chance to win one copy of Michael Wag's book. After the break, you'll be listening to me and Manuel Breuer chatting about Borussia Mönchengladbach. And joining me to have that chat about Borussia Mönchengladbach is none other than Vollraute Podcast, the Gladbach fan and expert Manuel Breuer. Welcome to our show, Manuel. Thanks for having me, Nick. Glad you're on. Um, so let's start off with what was going on during the last match. Uh, how did you see that one panning out from Borussia's perspective, that 4-3 loss against uh, Bayer Leverkusen? I think overall it has to be said that Leverkusen probably on this day was the stronger side. However, the way the match went, um, we should have really gotten some, you know, one or three points out of this game going uh, going head twice in the first half. Um, and, you know, there were a couple of chances where we could have scored a third goal. But overall, I think our defensive performance was very frail. So, um, yeah, deservedly three points for Leverkusen. Uh, why do you think that Borussia seemingly has problems from time to time to hang on to leads uh, this season. They were up in the Champions League matches against Inter and Real. They drew both in the end. Now they were up twice against Leverkusen on the weekend. I think they were even up against Union Berlin as well. That ended up as a draw too. So they've seemingly dropped already a few points from winning positions so far this season. So what seems to be the problem? I don't think um, all all the you know goals we conceded are based on the same mistake or the same setup um a couple of them were just really unfortunate because um yeah you know dropping being focused on a on a set piece or um just just really unlucky i guess in in some instances um but overall of course you you just have to be a bit more um composed in defense and and we were just lacking uh, to 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 see the game out um especially in the home games against union berlin and against wolfsburg um i guess to some extent that's also true against real um but mostly i think leverkusen showed um, or exposed where the problems lie, and that is with our fullbacks pushing up, uh, Stevie Liner and, and Rami Benzabaini. Um, always good to, you know, uh, give an assist to a goal and really get involved in the attacking force that is that is Gladbach. Um, they they might get caught out, and I think that's exactly what happened in Leverkusen. And we've seen that as, as well in their away game to Dortmund, beginning of the season, losing 3-0, where a team that has the technical ability and has the right players to expose... Um, or attacking attacking minded setup will hurt us at the moment, and I think that's something that Marco Rosa has to work on uh, during the during the break now. Mm. But if you take a little more positive spin to uh, you know the fact that Borussia uh, Mönchengladbach now are in seventh place on eleven points after seven match days, certainly not the sort of place where they wanted to find themselves after you know seven match days. But first of all, Champions League places only four points away. Second of all. They have already played RB Leipzig, they have already played Bayer Leverkusen, and they've played Borussia Dortmund. So that means there's only one of those sides left in the Hinrunde that is vying for one of those top five spots. So that must certainly be a positive side for Marco Rosa and his team. Exactly. As much as you can criticise the defensive performance so far, there were a lot of games where you know Gladbach was um, playing really good football, scoring beautiful goals, um, especially in the Champions League, of course, uh, giving yeah giving us Gladbach fans a lot of joy um, with the peak performance in Donetsk, which is almost 
perfect football, I would say, against the weaker position that night. But um, I think it also always shows how dominant a team can be if if you you know score six goals. Um, and I think it's this mixture of being top of the group in the Champions League after three games, and being in a position that is still comfortable. You know, everyone is satisfied with the league position. It's not outstanding, but it's it's good. It's where the club wants to be. Um, where we can now look at the second half of the Hinrunde and um, get more points really and work uh, tweak the performance a little bit defensively um, but I think overall of course everybody feels that we're in a good position yeah I mean I, I just had a look at your schedule coming up before the mini uh, the tiny winter break which is only a couple of weeks this um, this year um, so there are six more matches to go in the Bundesliga and those are at home to Augsburg and Schalke then there's an away trip to Freiburg home match against Hertha away trip to uh, Eintracht Frankfurt and the the years closed out by a, a home match against Hoffenheim. So realistically speaking, you would look at those six matches and think, well, we can take a great deal of points here, don't you? Yes, I mean, there's obviously a way to Freiburg is uh, sort of the it's been the nightmare scenario for a lot of Gladbach supporters for about uh, 20 years, never winning. Um, winning there um, and last season Gapa had an outstanding first half but still then went 1-0 down and never recovered but overall on paper these are all games where points should be collected and uh, Mark Rose's team has shown that they can exploit uh, the weaknesses of, of teams that are well maybe set to finish you know, bottom of the league or sort of in a mid-table position. Uh, whereas the big task maybe also this season was to get wins, more wins against the big teams, which was successfully done against Leipzig. First ever home victory or home points against Leipzig. And then, yeah, Leverkusen was a was a wild open game with um, the better ending, of course, for Bayer. Um, but certainly against, um, against Augsburg at home and Schalke, should be six points for a start. We actually have four home games with the Champions League in a row in, I think, 11 days, which is a, a record playing Inter and uh, Schachtia at home as well. Yeah, certainly a great thing these days that not in a, a lot, an awful lot of travel has to be done. Um, we had some listener questions in for you um, when we announced that we would have you on on Twitter. And, uh, you know, you mentioned beautiful goals there. And uh, I'd be remiss not to ask uh, the question of at Kempfenietz, what a great Twitter handle that is. Love it. Um, he or she asks, uh, despite the Lazaro goal counting for no points, does it deserve a Pushkas Award nomination? It was just so insanely good. I don't think you have going to have any arguments with that one. It is. I think it's a strong contender for goal of the year. Um, I always like my you know, best goals of the year to be embedded in a in a winning performance or in a performance that uh, leads to something. Of course, in that regard, it was a bit it was a bit sad that it was too late, um, too little too late in that game. But of course, certainly, um, the, the the goal itself is is yeah, it's just it's just a beauty, Slatanesque. <laughs> it is. Uh, well, I mean, Slatan would be grateful if he ever scored such a goal. Um, Another question we've had in from from one of our listeners is from uh, at Jasmine Baba, and she wonders how much do Gladbach miss Dennis Sicario? So you mentioned the um, the you know wingers maybe or the wingbacks maybe being uh, out of place at times, but do they also miss that presence in central midfield in terms of you know maybe not conceding too many silly goals? Yes, I think it's 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 a good point, a really good question because. We had games. Maybe, maybe the performance against Leipzig and against Donetsk, they, they they let us forget how 
how how much we missed him because then that pairing uh, Neuhaus and 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 uh, Jonas Hofmann as well a little bit, but also um, uh, Christoph Kramer really you know were solid in 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 this in this position. But Dennis Zakaria just has this ability to mop up anything that comes comes through there, and at the same time he has this probing runs forward, which we're actually missing in the home games against Berlin and Wolfsburg, where we struggle to create something. And I think it's that creativity that he has together with his yeah physicality that that uh, Kramer and and uh, Neuhaus who struggled at the beginning of the season in, in form uh, couldn't really you know he couldn't really replace him there so i think some of these games would have gone differently with Dennis Sakaria on the pitch well one one of one other point that me and um, Matt Herman discussed on on the last episode of talking football was uh, the fact that we both like uh, Marcus Duram and Alessandro Player but we don't think that either one is the sort of notorious goal scorer that is going to grant you 20 plus goals, whilst most other sides vying for the Champions League, like Bayern, like Dortmund, like RB Leipzig, and potentially now Bayer Leverkusen with uh, Alario, have that sort of striker. Do you think that is a problem for, for the team and for Marco Rosa, or is Gladbach's tactical setup maybe just a little bit different, a little bit more? you know, spreading the goals around in terms of, you know, having more players score, you know, a decent amount of goals, but maybe not 20 plus goals. I think at this point in the season, you guys made a good argument in the show that, you know, uh, you know, just a goal poacher or someone who can just score out of out of nothing um, is really an asset. If you go for um, probably the high point tally, that is the top four positions this year. However, Gladbach did really well last year to distribute the goal scoring and also assists um, in the team. And I think they were one of the few European sides to have even three players very close to double digit numbers and goals and assists. So, you know, altogether creating a lot of goals from a front three, front four players. And that did the job in terms of uh, qualifying for the Champions League. It's just at the moment, maybe there's five to 10% missing um, on every, you know, some every striker's ability to to get that missing goal. We could have on Sunday, um, you know, uh, Stindl, Wolf, Turam, uh, they all had really good chances and we could be talking Gladbach getting five goals in Leverkusen. Um, and sometimes it's just really that, you know, that, that little bit extra and, you know, Turam and player coming off an uh, injury into the season that also hasn't helped. Um, I'm, I'm a bit more confident when it comes now to the month until until Christmas. Well, you mentioned Hannes Wolf there. Uh, he's one of the two signings that Gladbach uh, purchased or have, has actually on loan um, this season. The other guy is Valentina Lazaro, who scored that amazing Scorpion uh, kick goal. Um, but, you know, um, both of these players, they, they haven't really, probably not uh, made a massive mark so far. Um, so we had a listener question in from, uh, from Duvik Einer, who actually uh, is one of the guys who runs a Gladbach podcast in Norwegian. Uh, if you are Norwegian, uh, you or do if you speak Norwegian, you should definitely listen to it. Very entertaining podcast. And he wonders, uh, will Hannes Wolf overcome his dropping start and become a solid asset for the Foles? I think he he's really struggled in the beginning, and um, of course he's been also criticised, and, um, and it probably even includes myself, <laughs> um, feeling that he he's not there where he, we could have been, should have been, but 
it has to be said that he, you know, he's out injured last last year with RB Leipzig, and then um, there were some complications with the recovery and into June, which then of course makes it a really long um, recovery phase for him. Um, he's, I think he can he can become an asset. That is simply because he's the type of player who needs the support from the coach, which he didn't get in, in at Leipzig. And um, you know, they, they Mark Rosa and, and Hannes, they, they know each other from from the Salzburg days, and I think it will turn into a fairly successful story. If it's if it's a huge success, I don't know yet. Um, certainly, scoring that Sitter in Leverkusen five yards, <laughs> five yards in front of goal without a keeper in um, could could have helped, would have helped uh, to score a second goal after the win against Leipzig. Um, it remains to be seen, but um, it's good to have him on. He does he does the defensive work really well, tracked back really well, worked worked good um, in the team shape uh, against Leipzig. So I think he can he can add a couple of percent to his game, and 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 then he's he will also be a good option. As I was talking about, several options we have in our attacking football as to Valentino Zara really unfortunate got injured 17 minutes into the first test game of the season um, came back now and I think uh, it was it was always good to see that he seems to be well integrated into the system wherever he was played he was actually played as a striker for a couple of minutes in Leverkusen before he went back to the to the right wing position that he you know more naturally holds um, but he he looks he looks ready to go now and I think I could see him after after the break could see him you know be starting 11 material um, I think he's you know his technical ability has shown that in the Bundesliga for Berlin I think he even gave a couple of goals and assists against us over the years so um, I think uh, you know Wolf has a has has some way to go but Lazaro could be already a good really good option for the starting 11 now in November and December yeah uh, indeed um you talked about Marco Rosa then, maybe him changing or shaping Gladbach in his image. Um, I mean, what sort of changes has he made from Dieter Hacking? That that that's certainly there are certainly many massive changes ever since he came in. I think so. One notable change that happened right in the beginning last season was that um, that intensity, the 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 opposition is pressured um, it's not necessarily the you know the high court press all the time that we see maybe with well young club not necessarily but more so Guardiola um, but it you can see this in periods of the game uh, for 20 minutes or so but it's also put put a lot of effort on the on the wingers rushing up so that you almost have um, a holding midfielder dropping as a quarterback style footballer like uh, Florian Nahas is now doing and, and the wingers uh, I mentioned Rami Benzabaini really great signing last year and uh, Steve Lana all the, all the same they they just you know Rush down the, the 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 wing and 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 pressure the opposition, but also get get the crosses in, and that was certainly different. The more I don't want to say sedated, but the more, the quieter the quieter um, build up with uh, with um, uh, under Dieter Hacking, um, which was based on you know possession football, which Marco Rosa also likes to have. He likes to have control, but um, I think I think you can see that there's a more vertical play that's now implemented once you you get the ball in a high position up the pitch in the position's third ideally you then have two or three um, vertical passes and you're in front of goal and you hit it and uh, and the detail hacking is, is more about control and having possession rates that are really high and i think Gapa was there consistently in the top four top five yeah, and, and that sort of football is attractive to watch. It's fun to watch. It has produced results. Gladbach on the Champions League after all. And, you know, uh, that makes Marco Rosa one of the hottest properties in terms of maybe taking over at a big club. And there have been some articles in German newspapers saying that he, you know, is, uh, you know, causing, causing Borussia 
Dortmund and other clubs to take a keen interest in him. Uh, we had a question in from uh, Brooke Genena, uh, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, who asks, who is a Dortmund fan and who asks, how long can they hold on to Marco Rosa? I'm just asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> phony, phony I knew. Um, I, th I think... Any Gladbach supporters shouldn't be too worried at the moment because I think um, the the way Max Eberl approached this change from Hacking to Rosa, it was always meant to be a mid-term, long-term project. And of course, you know now you can argue that well, Bundes the business in the Bundesliga is if a big bigger club, bigger than Gladbach, wants you or a player or a manager, they're gonna you know they're gonna part at some part ways at some point. However, I think Mark Rosa is the kind of manager who wants to see his plan through over a couple of years. Um, he's still in contact. I'd be personally really surprised if this was his last season or even after next season he would he would leave the club because I think he has some football he really wants to implement and wants to steadily show at the club. Um, and there's still some ups and downs in the performances and he hasn't fully had the time to have a you know, squad turnover where he can you know have all the players on the pitch he wants to have in a squad. That, that takes time, as we know. Um, so, you know, of course, I have a vested interest in uh, saying this, but, <laughs> but I, I'm quite confident that Marcos will stay for a couple of more years at Klapa. What do you think Mark, uh, uh, Max Abel has to do to keep him happy? I mean, what sort of players does he have to bring in in, in order to keep him at the club? Because this is always, I think this is always also going to be a question of these guys being so ambitious they you know if if you are if you already have finished fourth with a club you want to go higher than that don't you and uh, that's basically also going to depend on what sort of possibilities you're granted at that mm. club in terms of the personnel you get your hands on mm. i think and this is some sort of follow-up comment on the on the dortmund question and, and a bit cynical comment you know but what kind of trophies is going to win in dortmund You know, the German, the German, you know, sorry, but the, the German cup is always up for grab for a team like Gladbach as much as Dortmund or, you know, Leipzig and, and Bayern, of course. But the title race has always been uh, Bayern, really, uh, especially towards the end of the season for the last uh, couple of years. Um, so, you know, I think there's a good argument to be made that it's it's. It's an exciting project, and yet, um, you know, there, there's there's some way to go, and um, there's a title maybe more in in the cup competitions for for Gladbach um, that remains to be seen. But it's not necessary that going to another club that is not Bayern Munich in Germany, you you guarantee, you know, uh, get trophies uh, in this decade of of, um, of Bundesliga football. So you might he might as well hold out and, until that Bayern spot becomes available when they fall out of love with uh, Hansi Flick in two or three years from now uh, yeah this uh yeah of course uh, this is always a bit more um yeah uh scary that thought that uh, when once that door opens um he'll, he'll be gone but um we just don't know i think max able did a great favor uh, to 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 max Mark rose by holding on to all the players that is as good as signing um really excellent players to, to you know bring into the squad hold on to the um, to the, the pillars of the team, which which he's done throughout the Corona crisis, um, and and you know we we've suffered from that in previous years. The club being a club, a gateway to to the bigger clubs, um, but you know the likes of Zakaria, as we mentioned him, even to run player only after a short time, uh, Matthias Ginter, they all stayed with the club, and it, sometimes that's that's you know more of a challenge than um, than getting one or two good new signings and who have to you know, get get integrated into the squad over the years. 
Yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. I suppose so. Um, well, uh, that leads me to to my last question. Uh, what are your thoughts about Borussia Mönchengladbach's future? Then, uh, do you think they have firmly established themselves as the sort of side that could finish in the top four every season, and that's definitely going to finish top five every year going forward from now? I think a step forward we made in the past three to five years was that we consistently challenged for a top six position. I think that that I can say in all confidence. Top four, um, I think Bayer Leverkusen would back to differ. They, uh, you know, there seems to be the new race between Bayer and and, and Gladbach for uh, the fourth spot, um, with the likes of Leipzig, Dortmund, Bayern always being that you know bit further away from from these two teams. Um, so it, it, I don't see Gladbach comfortably go into the Champions League every season. Um, but at the same time. Um, I, I see them always challenge for this in the next two or three years, if nothing unforeseen happens, like the departure of you know the key key personnel we just discussed. Well, excellent. I hope it stays that way. Uh, Manuel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on our podcast once again. Before I let you go, tell our listeners where they can find your work and where they can find you on Twitter. Of course. Thanks, Nick. Um, you can find me on Twitter at binger05 and you can find the Fallrouter podcast at fallrouter underscore de or our English version, Fallrouter Abroad at fallrouter underscore en. This is it for this edition of Talking Foosball. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, make sure to sign up to our Patreon channel, patreon.com forward slash Talking Foosball. There you can win that copy of Michael Wag's book. You can listen to the entire interview with Manuel Breuer, the entire interview with Michael Wag, and... To be honest, there's an awful lot of content coming up on that Patreon channel, so you better act now to be able to get your hands on it. This episode of Talking Foosball has, as always, been produced by Aiden Rain Tool. My name is Nick Viltong. You can follow me on Twitter at Musings. You can follow the podcast at Talking Foosball. We'll be back next week with Match Day 8. Until then, it's goodbye for now.